Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. Uh, like Andy said, my name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. I've been out of the pulpit the past few weeks, getting a little bit of rest and uh, taking some time off and also working ahead on our sermon series for the fall. So looking forward to that. But uh, if you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We're glad to have you this morning. We'd love to get to know you. Love to get, help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And we'd also love to invite you into our summer sermon series. We're working our way through a series we call Jesus on Every Page. And what we've been doing throughout the summer together is taking a look at a bunch of different Old Testament passages, some you're probably familiar with, some you probably aren't. And we've been showing how, highlighting how all of them aren't ultimately about just like teaching us some moral lesson about who we're supposed to be like or what we should or shouldn't be doing, but instead, all of them are primarily meant to point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. We saw Sally Lowe Jones puts it this way. She says, the Bible is a story. At the center of that story is Jesus, and every story whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of the puzzle that makes all the other pieces fit together and reveals the beautiful picture of the gospel. We've seen how, as well during our time together this summer, how the the idea that the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, is all about God and the gospel, that's not my idea, that's not something some brilliant pastor or theologian came up with, but rather it's what Jesus himself taught in places like John chapter 5 and in Luke 24 where he teaches both the religious leaders and the disciples alike that all the scriptures find their fulfillment, they point to, they're, they're about ultimately him. And so at the heart of our series this summer is learning to read the Old Testament the way Jesus did, with him at the center of all the stories. And so this morning we're going to do just that as we take a look at a passage in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was a, a prophet uh, in the Old Testament, and there's a section uh, the, that we're going to look at this morning of, of Isaiah's book. That's a part of a group of four passages that are found in the latter portion of the book of Isaiah. They're, these four passages are known as the servant songs. And we're only going to take a look at the first of Isaiah's servant songs this morning, but what you need to understand is that all of them are kind of these passages of poetic prophecy, and they're all concerning this figure that's referred to or known as the servant of the Lord. And each of the songs, they describe various aspects about what the servant will be like and what he does and how he serves and, and what he accomplishes, but, but all of them are meant to point you to this figure. And what I can't wait to show you this morning is how all of the songs, uh, ultimately they point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. And so with that in mind, let's pray and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into the servant songs in Isaiah together this morning. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for you. And thanks that it is indeed you who are on every page. We're just grateful for the good news of the gospel that's not just in the pages of the New Testament, but that is foreshadowed and pointed to in the pages of the Old. And so as we come to study your word again this morning, as we come to see you, the the great servant, uh, might Jesus, might you help us to see yourself more clearly, help us to see you for who you really are and all that you've really come to do. And might we, in seeing you, uh, love you more, give ourselves more wholeheartedly to you, and live for your glory in the world. And so uh, I can't make any of that happen, uh, but you can, God. And we pray, uh, I pray for our good and for your glory that you might do it. So we pray this morning. Amen. Like I said, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 42, uh, verses 1 through 9. The song goes this way. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he'll bring justice to the nations. 
And he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. And this is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. For I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place. And new things I declare, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Now, like I said on the front end, the passage this morning is about this figure known as the servant of the Lord. But before we get to this servant and what the passage has to say about him, it's actually really important that we understand a little bit of the context in which the servant gets introduced so that we understand why he's so important to the, to the, to the Old Testament storyline. You see, the, the first servant song, it comes right after a passage uh, where God is warning his people against idolatry, against worshiping idols. It's a major theme throughout the book of Isaiah, but especially clearly in chapter 41, right before our passage this morning. God describes over and over the, the worthlessness of idols. They, they don't know anything. They're powerless to do anything. They're worthless delusions. They're just kind of pointless, empty lies. And yet, at the same time, what's happening is that they're holding his people captive. And it's easy for us to think with a kind of a modern mindset, yeah, like uh, worshiping a carved statue, objectively dumb, right? Like I think we, that's the biggie on the eye chart. We got that one down, like we're, we're cool, right? We don't have to worry about that. But before we brush off this, this warning against idolatry and thinking it's not really meant for us, it's meant for some other people in some other time, it's important to understand that throughout the Bible, idolatry is not a statue issue. It's a heart-level issue. In fact, it's the most frequently addressed problem of the human heart in the whole Bible. Throughout the scriptures, we are warned again and again and again about worshiping idols. And three of the Ten Commandments, in fact, deal with the sin of idolatry. The very first two commandments, they instruct us that we should worship God supremely and that we should worship Him exclusively. And the last command about coveting talks about desiring your neighbor's things and all those kinds of things more than you desire God. And we see in the New Testament how the New Testament clearly links this this law against coveting with the bigger issue of idolatry in our hearts. And so all three of these commands, they speak to this deep-seated temptation in the human heart to love and serve and value something more than God. You see, and idolatry is such a big and universal problem because the reality is, is that every human ever, the best thing every human is good at is to be a worshiper. We're designed by God to worship. And more than that, we're designed by God to worship Him. But when we stop worshiping God, we don't stop worshiping altogether. We just start worshiping something else. 
We're prone to love and adore and depend on everything but God. Bad things, good things, even gifts from God. And on the surface, that can look like allowing, letting a person or a thing or careers or money or family or all kinds of things rule and define our lives and our identity. But underneath all of that stuff, the much deeper, kind of more insidious longings that we have for power and comfort and control and approval are these desires that drive our lives. There are substitute gods. We don't have time to do the deep dive this morning on source idols, but suffice it to say, those longings that we all have in some way, shape, or form for power and comfort and control and approval, we're te- all of us are tempted in some way to worship those, to let them be the controlling, overriding influence in our lives. And the problem of idolatry is something that God wants his people to see clearly, which is why in chapter 41 of Isaiah, every time God refers to the idols that the people are worshiping, he he tells them to look, to see, to behold. That that word behold, it means to both both observe something and to consider it, to, to pay attention to it and to evaluate it. You see, God's telling them in chapter 41, he's telling his people in 41 to consider the idols, to take a long, hard look at the idols that they are worshiping. They can't satisfy, they cannot help, they don't know the future, they can't guide you, they cannot save you. And then chapter 42 begins. And throughout chapter 41, God has said, look at the idols you're worshiping. And chapter 42 begins and he says, now look at my servant. In the ESV, it translates it, behold, my servant. See, in the contrast that God's painting between the idols that his people are tempted to worship and the servant who is worthy of worship could not be more stark. And so as we take a look what God has to say about this servant this morning, what I want to show you is that What God's trying to help us to see is that it's only when you see his servant, the servant, that you'll be able to see not only the worthlessness of your own idols, but the worthiness of the servant, the one who's really worth our worship. In other words, it's only when you behold the servant of the Lord that you'll be able to see the truth about the idols that you're drawn to, the worthlessness of them, and be able to turn from them to the one true God. And so throughout the passage, what God is trying to do is he's trying to help us see this servant clearly so that we might see him and see in contrast the idols that we're tempted to worship. And God highlights four things we need to behold about this servant. I gave him all A names. Hopefully that'll help you, right? Um, We're going to see the anointing of the servant, the assignment of the servant, the approach of the servant, and lastly, the accomplishments of the servant. So Let's start it this way, the, the anointing of the servant. The passage opens by describing the anointing of this servant of the Lord. He's upheld by God, the passage says in verse 1, meaning that God's the one who supports and who sustains his work. He's, and he's not only chosen by God, the passage goes on in verse 2 to say he's delighted in, right? You can pick somebody for a job and still not like them, right? That's not what's going on here. See, the servant of the Lord is loved and cherished, delighted in by God. More than that, he has the blessing of the Lord's Spirit. In the Old Testament, having the Spirit of the Lord on you meant that you had the Lord's personal power and presence with you. And so what's clear here is that there's something very special about this servant. 
In fact, the fact that his title is my servant instead of attached to some name, it, it tells us to read it more like the Lord is saying, here is my preeminent servant. Here is the one who embodies true servanthood. In other words, he's, he's not just any servant. This servant of the Lord that the Lord is talking about here, he's not just any servant. He is the servant. And he's been anointed by God for a very important assignment and purpose we see in the passage that his assignment is to bring justice to the nations. See, when you and I think about justice, we tend to think about what's called rectifying justice. right? That's punishing evil, setting things right, kind of making, th- making amends. But the word that the Bible uses here for justice is a word that has a much broader meaning. It, it's, uh, it's more than just punishing evil and setting things right. It's, it's about this, it's, it contains this idea of bringing about absolute rightness. A synonym for this word would be the word shalom. It's this kind of perfect, all-encompassing peace. And so the servant of the Lord isn't just righting wrongs. He is restoring all things back to their perfect beginning. He's bringing a return to the garden, a return to before sin entered the world and destroyed everything, a return to Genesis 1 where God's created the the world and says of it, this is good. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, in short, this servant will undo all of the horrendous and degrading effects of sin. The servant will undo all of the horrendous and degrading effects of sin. Moreover, the, the justice that this, this servant brings, it's, it's not just absolute rightness for some, but instead it's this kind of universal justice. It's for all of the nations, for all people. Verse 4 says that even the islands, the most remote parts of the world, will put their hope in his teaching, and that he'll be a light to the Gentiles. That's the, everyone who is non-Jewish, all those who aren't yet a part of God's chosen people. And so the, the restoration of all things, the kind of justice this servant brings about is absolute and all-encompassing. It's, it's for all people. But what comes next is is even more surprising because the passage goes on to describe the way this servant brings about that kind of justice. And it's not with power or force or might, but instead it's with humility and sacrifice. That brings us to the third thing we need to behold about the servant. It's the approach of the servant. See, he gets the results of a king, but he doesn't use the methods of any other king. Other kings use power. They conquer and overtake. They dominate with the use of force, whether that's military or political or ideological. But this servant of the Lord is altogether different. Verse 2 says it this way, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. In other words, his his ministry is not going to be characterized by domineering force or threats of punishment. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he won't snuff out. His ministry won't be characterized by overrunning and trampling the weak. His kingly rule and reign will not be characterized by taking advantage of those who are broken and hurting, those who are running out of strength and discarding them. That language about a, a bruised reed, it has this picture, it reminds me about uh, these flowers around the edge of my house 
every summer, I don't know what they're called, maybe irises, don't quote me on that, I don't really know about plants, right? Uh, they're tall and they look good, right? So that's why they stayed. And they keep coming back and I don't do anything about it, right? Um, but what happens oftentimes in the summer is that when it rains, these flowers, they've gotten tall, but they'll, they'll like bend over under the weight of the, the flower that's on the end and the stem will kind of kink. And the flower still looks beautiful. It still has all of its color, but you know that it's only a matter of time because it's not just that there's this little minor problem, it's that there's this deep inner contusion. The flower's dying unless something is done about it. See, that's the kind of bruised reed that this servant won't just pluck and discard. It's not too far gone. It's not worth snuffing out. It's not worth clipping off. Instead, this is the kind of servant who doesn't trample over the weak. Instead, verse 3, in faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. Verse 4, he won't falter. He won't be discouraged. He'll establish justice on the earth. And there's something really amazing here that I want to show you in the words of this kind of poetic song that normally you just can't really see unless you have a good commentary. Now, vast majority of time, you don't need a commentary to understand what's going on in the Bible. But when you're reading Hebrew poetry, sometimes it's helpful, right? Sometimes it is. And one of the things that was really helpful when I was studying this week is I highlighted how the, the Hebrew words that are used to describe the smoldering wick and the dying candle, they have the same root that's used to describe how the servant won't falter. It's the same root word. Likewise, the Hebrew word that's used for the bruised reed, uh, it has the same root that's used to describe how a servant won't be discouraged. And so in the Hebrew, they look very similar and they sound very similar, these words. And the point, again, of the poetry of the language that's being used here is it's trying to communicate something important important with those ideas. And what the passage is getting at is that in order to bring about this kind of absolute justice, this kind of restorative restoration, that the servant will experience the same things that the people he's serving experience. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, the servant finds himself subject to the same pressures which have made others smolder and burn low, but he does not smolder or burn low and falter. Likewise, he is bruised as they are bruised, and yet he is not defeated or discouraged. See, the passage is getting at this idea that the servant of the Lord will feel the weight and the burdens that cause other people's faith to burn low, but he will not burn out, and he won't falter, and in so doing, he'll be able to humbly serve those who are burdened and brokenhearted. And the servant is bruised and wounded by the blows of the enemy. But he is not defeated, and he won't be discouraged. And in so doing, he'll be able to gently care for those who are broken. See, the servant brings about this restorative justice. And he does it like no one else. His approach is through humility and gentleness, not power and force. And in the end, what we see is that the servant accomplishes something no one else could. In verses 6 and 7, he becomes a, a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. 
And he becomes the means by which people come back into a right relationship with God. And it becomes a light, a shining light that opens blinded eyes and that sets prisoners free. And he does it by revealing the truth about God. The God who in verse 5 created the heavens and the earth and who gives everyone and everything its life. The God who in verse 9 not only knows but determines the future. The, the one and true living God who won't allow his glory to be given or shared with anyone or anything. See, the servant is the light that reveals the truth about God, and in so doing, the servant also reveals the truth about the idols that are not God. See, it's only when you behold this servant of the Lord that you can see the truth about God and also about all the things we worship that are not God. And so the question that you're invited to ask throughout the servant songs in Isaiah, right, the obvious question, who is the servant? Who is this great servant who will bring about this kind of justice, who will do it in this unexpected way? Who is this great servant? The people who heard Isaiah's prophecy, they, they longed for the coming of this great servant. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip, God sends Philip to on, on his path, he is asking the very same question, who is this servant? Who is the one who can bring about this kind of justice, who can do it like this? Who is this servant? And like Philip did, I want to begin with this passage and tell you the good news about Jesus. Because he is indeed the anointed servant of verse 1. He's the one we must behold. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus has just been baptized and the heavens open and the voice of God rings out and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in saying that, God's quoting these two Old Testament passages about the, the messianic servant who will come and will bring about this kind of justice and rightness. And what he's doing is he's linking these two ideas together from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 that this great messianic king will also be a humble servant, a king who brings about justice and who is delighted and loved by the Father. You see, the great messianic king and the humble servant of Isaiah 42 are the same person, and his name is Jesus. He is the anointed king who comes to bring about God's justice, and he is the servant king in whom the Lord delights. And when you are found in him, When his kingly rule and reign is brought into your life through faith, what happens is we are made right with God. And it's only when we are found in him that God says of us as he says of his son. You are my child in whom I delight. See, and that's the very thing all of us need to hear the most. In Genesis 1, God finished creation and he says, this is very good, I am well pleased with you. And in the gospel, that's what God says again to us. That he delights in us as if we had done everything his servant had done. We've been made right, we have been restored. And that's the very assignment the servant came to accomplish. 
See, Jesus not only is the chosen, anointed servant of verse 1, he's completed the assignment of the servant, and it's through him that all things are restored. See, Jesus was the remedy for sin that God promised was coming in in Genesis chapter 3, and all that sin destroyed, Jesus restores. Where sin brings chaos and destruction, Jesus brings justice and restoration. He brings about absolute rightness and complete restoration. He renews all things and restores all things all things as only he can. And he does it with the approach of the servant. See, Jesus is the humble, gentle, sacrificial servant Isaiah said would come. And he brings about God's justice, not with power and might, not by crushing all those who would oppose him, but by being crushed and by suffering in their place for them. Isaiah 53, the last of the servant songs, tells us that this great servant of the Lord would be oppressed and afflicted and yet would not open his mouth. Just as Isaiah 42 said, he wouldn't cry out in the streets and he wouldn't draw attention to himself, that he would, as Isaiah 53 writes, take up our pain and bear our suffering. Goes on to say where all this would lead, that this great servant would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be bruised and crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brings us peace was on him, and that it's by his bruises that we have been healed. You see, Jesus was bruised, and he was wounded, and he was crushed, so that you and I might go free. Tim Keller says it this way, that Jesus received the rectifying justice our sin and rebellion deserved so that one day God could bring about absolute restorative justice and remove all evil without crushing and removing us. Do you see the compassion of this great servant? See, you and I, we're the dying, bruised reeds that Jesus alone has the power to heal. And just like those bruised reeds at the outside of my house, right on the outside they might look fine, but on the inside they are dying. Maybe you feel that this morning. Maybe you're here and you feel like you're just trying your best, you're doing your best to hold it together on the outside, and yet on the inside you know something is deeply wrong. And maybe you're overwhelmed by guilt from sin or you feel like you cannot be forgiven or maybe you're just filled with doubt about whether or not you can really trust God or whether or not it's, you can really, it's safe to surrender to him. And so Jesus this morning comes to you in, as the servant in Isaiah 42, not demanding that you fix yourself in order to come to him, but he comes to you with this invitation, a proclamation, a diagnosis that just like the bruised reeds will inevitably die unless they are restored, so too will you. If you don't come to him, see, he is the great physician who was bruised and crushed so that he might heal our bruises. And the invitation is that you might put yourself under his servant care. A bruised reed he will not break. A dying candle he won't snuff out. He will mend and heal 
he blows gently until the fire burns again. See, he is the servant king. And he comes to rescue us, not just from our brokenness, but from our own sin and our own rebellion. He comes to set us free. See, Jesus accomplished everything that God promised this servant would accomplish. He is our covenant, the means by which we're made right with God. He is our light that shines brightly, revealing the truth about God and the truth about the worthlessness of everything else we worship. And it's only when we see him, the servant of the Lord, God himself, that we'll be able to distinguish what is real and worthy of worship from the lies. One commentator puts it this way, he says, the nature of idolatry is that we worship and serve that which does not deserve it. And at the heart of the Christian message is that Jesus Christ, the chosen one, the great servant, the one who truly deserves our worship, has instead served us first. Your idols will never serve you. And they certainly will not die for you. They will just endlessly demand more of you. They promise life they cannot give. They offer satisfaction they cannot offer. And yet Jesus is the only one who was crushed so that you and I might be healed. And it's only when you see him, the true servant of the Lord, that you'll be able to see the truth about the lies that the idols you worship say and the truth about God. See, and it's the person and the work of Jesus that we remember and celebrate every week when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves of his substitutionary death in our place. We're celebrating that every week when we take communion. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It doesn't save you. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember his body and blood broken and shed for us. His, his bruises, his bones crushed so that you and I might be healed and set free. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be the servant king who has served you and the one who is worthy of your worship, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. You can dip the bread in the juice and you can remember all that he has done for you. Do it as a joyful reminder of all you have trusted Jesus to be and to do for you as the servant king. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're figuring out what following him really means, or you're not sure if you're ready to surrender to him, or if that's even safe to do, I just need you to know you are so welcome here. And your process is welcome and your questions are welcome, but I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God's not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's not after putting our hope in those kinds of things. He wants us to put our hope in the servant, in him, in Jesus, to be for us what we could not be and to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish. And so wherever you're at this morning as we take communion, as we sing, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Do you see how the servant songs have to be about Jesus? 
Do you see why we need them to be about him? If the servant songs are just an example of what being a good servant really means, they're just an example that crushes you. Because you aren't the servant. And on your best day, you don't even get close to accomplishing what the servant accomplishes. And if it's just a list of what you should be striving after, it's just a list you endlessly fail to live up to. And yet if the servant songs of Isaiah aren't about you, but they're really about Jesus, if they're about showing you the great and true servant who has come to be for you what you could not be for yourself, to accomplish for you what you could not accomplish on your own, then it transforms you. And as you see him, as you see the truth about God that he reveals to you, it shines the light about the truth of God and it also shines the light into the darkness of our sin. It shows us the, all the idols and the worthlessness that they have when you compare them to the light of the servant. But more than that, it doesn't just help you to see the truth about the servant, it helps you to become like him. When you see that the true servant king has, instead of demanding your service, instead of instead served you first, it melts your heart. And instead of being full of duty and obligation, you're full of love for the servant king. The one who served you when you didn't deserve it who became for you what you could not become for yourself, who set you free, who healed and restored you, who didn't conquer you, but who came and fanned into flame that which was dying. And the more you see him, the more you know him, the more you behold this great servant, the more you'll become like him. See, Jesus was the true servant and the true king. And when we see him, we imitate him. And we become servants just as he was. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. And we are so grateful, Jesus, that this passage is not a list of things we need to accomplish for ourselves. It's not just a paradigm of servanthood that we need to aspire to. But Lord Jesus, it is a proclamation of the true servant king. We're thankful that Jesus, that you are that kind of king. You don't come to rule and bring about justice by crushing all those who oppose you, but instead you are crushed in our place so that you might be gentle to us. Lord Jesus, we pray that we might behold you this morning that we might see you as the anointed servant, that we might see your approach as the servant, that we might see all you accomplished as the servant, and that we might love you all the more for it. God, fill us with eyes that can see you for who you really are, so that we might also turn from the idols we are so tempted to worship, worthless as they are, and might be filled with love for you that overflows into lives lived for your glory. We pray, amen.